Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dad Stories. And I'm your dad. I'm Noodla. Hi, Dad. This is your non-binary son, Eden Noodla. And this is a podcast where we compare and contrast stories from, well, I guess now, just from growing up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What are we talking about today? Today, we're going to start a short series that I am calling Things I Learned While in College. Mm-hmm. In the course of the series... I hope we will discuss things that struck us as significant, both serious and less serious, while we were at college learning all of that academic stuff. Mm -hmm. Today, I wanted to start the discussion with a profound experience that dealt directly with the emergence of women in the workforce. I think many of our listeners may have picked up that I attended the United States Military Academy at West Point, and I started there in 1976 which happened to be the first year that the United States admitted women to the service academies. Prior to going, I remember people coming up to me, friends and acquaintances, and saying, oh, you're going to be there with, you know, with the first women. And I remember thinking that I know a lot of women that I think are as qualified or better qualified than me. I was on the track team, which was a joint boy-girl track team, and there were women that were faster than me. There were women that could jump farther than me. And there were a lot of women that were academically higher in class rank than I was. So it didn't seem remarkable to me at the time that I was going off to school where they were admitting women. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that attitude changed shortly after I got there. Mm. When we got to school, the women were getting a lot of attention from the press. Oh, interesting. One of the highlights of my experience was we were doing a training exercise where we were learning how to dig foxholes with the small entrenching tools that the army gives us. <laughs> and we were doing it, of course, in the in the mountains around West Points. And we couldn't use old foxholes. We had to dig brand new foxholes, which meant we were fighting every root and rock in the ground. Mm. And the women that were in our group were excused to go have dinner with Walter Cronkite. At least that's what we were told. But we, they did all get pulled out. Uh, from digging their foxholes to go meet with some press folks. Uh, I and a couple of other guys who were almost done with their foxhole were then assigned to dig their foxhole for them. And that was the first time I got exposed to that kind of experience. And of course, that didn't make me happy. Throughout my first year, there were several experiences like that where they were trying to get visibility to the country or to the world about how the women were doing at West I have a question just to uh, jump in right around there. From the case of the like leadership, what was the general sentiment of the leadership at West Point about having women students? Because I wonder the idea of requiring another group to dig the foxholes and like letting the women off. That seems like a really great way to sow dissent. And I wonder if that was intentional. Yeah, that's a really good question. My general opinion was the first year at all levels of cadet leadership, it was being fought. It's not clear to me that above that, the adult leadership, the officers and that kind of stuff. I don't know how their individual opinions were or permeated down, but I do know that on retrospect, there were mistakes made as to how it should be done. Mm. It's like, well, we got to make them all do this. We got to make them all do that. And in the end, they changed that. Over the four years I was there, you could see they were adjusting the approach 
So they were getting better and better. But the first year, there was a lot of things that, that had yet to be learned about having women in the in the academy. But your point, which is a good one, is that, yes, certainly it was an issue at all levels. You know, the three upper classes. And then to many of my classmates, it was easy to get that sense as well. Also ended up sharing a lot of those opinions. Yeah. There was only so many, you know, amongst the 4,000 students that were there. And so going into the school year after that first summer, not every cadet company had women in it. And I was in one of the companies that didn't have women in it. Mm. So I really wasn't exposed my first year other than in the classroom. But even in the classroom, I don't have many recollections of women in my classes. And so all I'm getting is hearsay. Mm-hmm from a community that was, generally speaking, not interested in having women at the academy. And I think the overall theme was that they were lowering the standards to allow women to succeed. Mm. If I were to try to summarize a lot of issues, I think the fundamental one, or at least the one that everybody hung on, was this lowering of the standards mm-hmm. to allow people who otherwise wouldn't make it to make it. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that was my first year. Nothing I can say can change. I, the thoughts I had and the opinions I that I gained that first year versus before I went there, you know, going in and the biases I earned. Yeah. The next summer, we would also be spending it together at West Point learning about the Army. And now all of us had women in our group. And so we were going through our army training and our field exercise and all that other stuff. And now day to day, I was more closely exposed to my classmates. Mm -hmm. I think there, the realization that my assumptions gained the first year may not be accurate started to set. Because those same women I knew in high school Mm -hmm. were there, you know, and they were humping the machine gun up the hill and they were doing all the physical challenging stuff we were doing. No problem. Mm -hmm. There was no question they were already academically equal or greater than certainly me. So I could never hold that over anybody. I just started to see that. That was not a smooth transition of understanding for a young Tom Noodle. (laughs) (laughs) But you you are having to counter the belief that the standard are being lowered. Yes. And also questioning my assumption that they did not, did not deserve to be there. Yeah. And then, of, co- of course, we had another round of, of women coming in with the year behind us. And so then every company had women in it. It was surprising to me to see the number of guys that were now open to working with the women as well, you know, the first year women. Mm. And my assumptions about everybody was against it was not true. Mm -hmm. It was really just a probably a vocal minority. And more people felt like I did than I realized. This is interesting. Okay, so like, as it became normalized, it also had to become normalized to not hate women. Right. Mm -hmm. It was faster for some people, Mm -hmm. and not as fast for others. I remember my junior year, I asked a underclassman to go to the homecoming dance with me. And it shocked me how much grief I got from my classmates. Oh, yeah. It was it was a surprise. And that was Mm -hmm. the third my third year. It wasn't as smooth a transition as I may be articulating with, you know, me in my first year and a half. I mean, the thing that I'm hearing is that like, you know, there's the act of rejection. There is a begrudging tolerance. And then obviously the idea of what celebration of having women inside of the academy, what celebration looks like might not be um, fully realized, but that 
the idea of you bringing bringing a woman with you to is it dance is what what is this we had a homecoming dance homecoming dance you're still encountering all the different levels of where everyone is at in their process of integrating themselves into this new environment yeah by senior year there were actually several classmates of mine that became friends mm mm-hmm. Uh, close enough that a couple of them shared with me some of the horrible experiences and the way they were treated mm-hmm. during their stay at West Point. And the stories they shared made me realize what it meant to really be breaking down barriers because I just couldn't believe that they would have stuck around with some of the stories that they shared with me, uh, the way they were treated the first couple of years there. And I still read stories about the academies and some of the sexual assaults and things that are, you know, that go on there. It's not overcome yet, but that realization, I would just say, is pure heroism Mm. (laughs) for many of them, was a great way to continue the evolution of understanding of the emergence of, Mm. in this case, women. But it wasn't hard for me to extract that it could be for all non-white male communities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. While serving in the army, on occasion, we had the chance to, I had the chance to cross paths and find out how everybody was doing. So I was able to stay in touch for a while mm-hmm. with several of my friends. And it always just seemed to be a more and more a lesson in how this transition occurs. That's the experience. Yeah. And then being able to reflect on that now that I'm retired, mm-hmm. what was that really all about? Well, first of all, those folks went through some really bad experience yeah. and they had to go through uh, a lot of uh, challenges that I did not have to go through. More importantly is they weren't lesser from a skill perspective, from an intellect perspective, from any perspective. Yeah. And I believe the only way I ever would have really learned it was by virtue of the fact that I experienced it. I went through it. I saw it. And if I had just watched it on TV or read a book or studied in class how I should behave and what it all means, I don't think it would have been nearly as great a lesson for me Mm -hmm. as it was to actually have lived through it. It was through living that experience that then allowed me to be more understanding and open-minded about the other communities that were trying to reach the same level of playing field that white males had historically had. This conversation around empathy and like, how do you learn it? Like, I think that an interesting thing that I've been thinking about is also why, especially like as white people specifically, it is not part of our culture to understand and to be able to gracefully incorporate other people's suffering, especially suffering that's our fault or our system's fault. I mean, on my college experience, like I had a kind of, I had a similar big transformation around gender. Well, not, I would say a similar, but different because college was where I, I learned that you could be trans. I learned that you could claim your own gender, that you could claim your own identity. I grew up in Ann Arbor, uh, which is a pretty liberal town for Michigan, but kind of the extent of my knowledge about queerness in high school was around the debate of gay marriage and a little bit about the AIDS epidemic, but it was never something that really felt like something that would relate to me. There were no kids within my circles that were out 
And when I got to college was, was where I met my first queer people and very much my friends. And so it became something that was like a pretty active part of stuff that we were talking about, but also something that was just a normal part of being. And then when my friend came out as trans in our junior year was when I figured out that that was something that you could be. And it was basically, in my mind, when I learned that you could be non-binary, it hit me at this visceral level of, oh, yes, that is me. And it was like a feeling of waking up. Uh, Unfortunately, the world that I woke up to wasn't just one of internal transcendental oneness, but also one where certainly from a... um, systemic level and from a historical perspective and in many ways a contemporary perspective this country does not love trans people i became so much more aware of how the system not only was built to ignore people like me but also to actively destroy and we see that now with what trump has done to take away healthcare protections for trans people And that's just like one tiny little slice of the pie. This was also coincidentally happening as the Ferguson protests and around the murder of Michael Brown by the cops. It was very much this like, oh, you know, this is happening to the black community. And it is my job as a white person to wake up and actively be fighting this. Did you come to that realization about systemic oppression while in college, or was that uh, an evolutionary thing in young adulthood? I would say that it began most distinctly in college, and then over... I mean, college wasn't that long ago for me, Uh and so (laughs) it's the longest it's ever been, but I would say that it has been a a pretty regular part of my life practice. Mm -hmm. Do you have thoughts on the dangers that members of the LGBTQ community experience either from the police or just in life. I read in the news about some of those dangers as well. Yeah, the Stonewall riots is why we have pride. They began by Black trans women. It was because for a long time and, you know, to this day, but less strict legal umbrella, it's been illegal to be queer. Lots of cross-dressing laws that have been around longer than they haven't been around is my understanding. I would say that the police antagonizing queer people is a experience that too many of us know. And it's because they can. Their uh, queerness is still a marginalized identity in the country. Right. So back to the reference and the things I learned in college, Mm -hmm. you know, I was referring strictly to my journey with accepting women in the workforce. It would have been later in life for me that I, and by the way, I would say to a lesser extent, you know, that was the first time in college that I got exposed to a racial minority Mm. because I grew up in a little rural town that was predominantly white, not exclusively white, but predominantly white. But it, it was certainly for me, the experience dealing directly, like hitting your face with integrating women at West Point that made me realize that I don't know how to do it right. But I know that mm. that those communities are not different than me. They may have cultural differences that should be looked at at opportunities to learn and not at opportunities to degrade or denounce. And so my question for you is, have you had any experience with changing people's minds and opinions about um, their view of LGBTQ or for that matter, you know, more closely the uh, police brutality that's happening with particularly the uh, black community? 
So I've used they, them pronouns for five years now. It is pretty significant way that if you if you are like trying to build a relationship with somebody and if they have not been exposed to somebody who doesn't use a binary pronoun that requires a pretty active change because it pronouns are such a direct part of speech i think that you know an aspect of that and what i find is the most successful when folks are able to integrate using they them pronouns into their speech is when they go through the process of also questioning what gender means and what it means to have a gendered body and to perceive other people's gender that it is more than just the switching of language but it is also the contemplation that comes with what it means to have gender in our language i can't change anyone's minds the only thing that happens is somebody changes their own minds the thing that i think is so interesting about your experience two things are happening it's not just you had these experiences then it opened up your mind it's like you had to have your experience and then also go through the process of challenging the thing that you already believed. I am going around existing as the person I am, but it also takes the other person wanting to have a relationship with me more than wanting to have this view of themselves that they currently have. Because it hurts to change. Like it hurts to say, oh wow, like the thing that I believed before was wrong. And now I need to handle both the guilt of having done something wrong and also making the effort to change to be better. I I didn't know if you were going to go down this path or not. Mm -hmm. Certainly, we can look at your and my journey in the pronouns and gender acceptance and understanding. I mean, I know I'm not there yet, but I know you through education and perseverance and struggle. I mean, I think you would agree it was not an easy journey for us to get to where we are today and that the journey is not complete. (laughs) You worked it right. It was a lot through education. And in our case, you know, I think we had a foundation based on what I just said that said we thought we were open-minded, but we were one, maybe not as much so as we thought, and two, we were certainly ignorant. I mean, our presuppositions around gender and sexuality and all that other stuff, you had to help us unclutter it so we had a better understanding. So I, I believe I'm a, one of your examples. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, again, it wouldn't have worked if you had, I mean, there is a lot of queer kids who I know who do not have relationships with their parents. It takes two. And like in a similar way, like it is harder for me around my anti-racial work and the conversations we've had around police brutality because I'm white. My understanding is from what I am learning from black folks on the internet and in my life, racism is a white person problem and it is on us to disassemble the systems that we have set up that do not work and are actively killing black people and brown people and indigenous people in our country. Mm-hmm. That's a two-prong effort of the work that I do with myself and the work that I am trying to figure out how to do with other white people. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'd say that there are a lot of things that I learned in college. It's kind of funny because I feel like you hear a lot of conservatives talk about like all these kids going to college and coming out questioning. Yes, absolutely. I certainly have peers that bring that up on a regular basis and say that our liberal colleges are the root of many evils. 
I really like your response to that. Would you uh, regale the, why is that a silly thing to say about our liberal colleges? Because everyone has a business school. So they're all teaching capitalism. If that is the case, and that is the root of what a lot of conservatives believe, then how can you just paint a blanket picture that says all liberal colleges are just teaching people all these non-traditional values and standards? Mm-hmm. They're all teaching capitalism still. Yeah, that's probably another show to talk about economic systems. <laughs> Maybe that's another thing I learned in college. <laughs> okay. So in this area, could you please summarize for me what you learned while in college? I would say that I learned how to look at myself and to think about who I was and who I wanted to be. And I learned how to begin looking at the world and how I impacted it for better or worse. That's what I learned in college. What did you learn in college, Dad? Well, in this area, the biggest thing I learned is that it's very easy to develop in your own bubble, your own personal biases and opinions. If I would just have time to experience the journey in other people's uh, shoes, that it would help me to learn and grow and, and be a better person and to try to understand as a white person how those biases and opinions negatively impact other people's lives, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Learn how to grow. I think something that is present to me about um, also the thing that you're saying too is learning how to believe other people. That, you know, I think that it's significant that you had friends who were women in college who were telling you the horrible stories of things that have happened to them and that you believed them, that that is actually something that doesn't happen a lot. I think that another element of learning and growing and changing your mindset is when you hear somebody talking about the things that are happening to them, that even if they don't match your worldview, that you can believe them. Right. Good observation. Let's try to do a little compare and contrast here. I mean, I think it's interesting that both of us had uh, a pretty significant experiences around gender in college. Yeah. That had a pretty significant impact on the way that we uh, viewed the world. And, and that's a compare. The contrast was mine came as a white male, privileged mm-hmm. white male. Mm-hmm. Yours came as also some privileged white mm-hmm. background, but um, certainly your gender and identity were where you were living, you were living the journey. I was living the journey. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. I appreciate being able to sit in this today, Dad. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard. I look forward to getting better at it. Me too. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I'll ever be complete. I think, uh, you know, as far as life goes, you know, I think that that's an all right thing to be dedicating the rest of it to. So we'll continue this conversation next week. The focus will probably not be as deep, but who knows? We got there pretty quickly today. It might happen again. Who knows? (laughs) For those that would like to share their thoughts on this episode, we can be reached by email at dadstoriespodcast at gmail.com. And you can go to our website at dadstoriespodcast.com. And you can download Dad Stories from wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thanks. Thanks for talking with me today, Dad. Yeah, thank you. I'm not going to say I enjoyed this as much as others, <laughs> but I, I'm feeling pretty good at the end, and certainly it only elevated my love and respect for you. Thank you for sharing. Same. I say the same thing. I love you very, very much. Have a good day. All right. We'll talk to you soon. I love you. Bye. Bye-bye.